Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, this is your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in our studio in New York City as every uh, Thursday, every, every end-of-the-week broadcast with... Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security, and we are joined by our friend Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. The Plumline GS is his uh, Twitter handle. Uh, hi, Greg. Hi, guys. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. Hi, Greg. Now, both of you guys are younger than me, so you probably don't remember a TV show called Car 54. It was on very briefly in the early 60s. I was a tiny baby in my mother's arms. But but, you know, it opened up and it was something like, you know, there's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. Khrushchev's landing at Kennedy, <laughs> car 54. Where are you? And that's kind of, you know, I'm like looking at the headlines of the world right now. And, you know, you've got um, coronavirus, which is taking some interesting turns. For example, 14 percent of the people who've been infected by it in Guangdong um, have gotten it again, which is weird and troubling. Uh, maybe they weren't over it. Maybe it doesn't create immunities, but that's weird and troubling. It's spreading very rapidly. 80,000 people have had it. Uh, there's a plague of locusts in, in uh, India and Africa that uh, is spreading across the world. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, we have our own dramatic uh, 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 issues here in the United States. The stock market's fallen more um, in the past four days than it did since 2008. Uh, today was the biggest one-day fall in um, maybe ever. It was 1,200-point fall. Um, so the world is, you know, complete mess. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., you know, as I was walking over here, it struck me with real clarity that even though we have all written articles and made statements about the narcissism of the president, we have seen over the course of the past few weeks since the end of the impeachment, narcissism become the unapologized for central operating principle of the government of the United States. In other words, look at how the president has um, set up the way the Justice Department works, or look at how the president has set up the way the, uh, the Office of Director of National Intelligence is working and how he's brought somebody in to clear out people in the intelligence community who are disloyal to him. Look at how he has set up the Office of Personnel Management in the White House with this 29-year-old Johnny McEntee, whose job it is to clear out people in the administration who are disloyal to him. Look at how he has responded to the coronavirus crisis, not with experts uh, in fact uh, one of the experts who is actually you know permanently in the in the government's employ 
um, Anthony Fauci, one of the smartest, most respected men in dealing with these issues, um, has uh, said today that he had been instructed by the White House not to say anything without the approval of Vice President Pence. Why is Vice President Pence in charge? Because the president trusts him and he's loyal to Trump. Uh, who do we have good relationships in the world? Countries that are loyal to Trump. Why was the India trip good for Trump? Because they were big pictures of Trump and Modi has a cult of personality and Trump has a cult of personality and they both were flattering each other. Um, nowhere in this is expertise or the national interest. Um, first and foremost in the, in the priorities of the government um, and it's being taken to grotesque extremes in, in uh, <clears throat> the administration of justice, the administration of national security, the administration of uh, uh, public health policies. Um, cities that don't agree with the government's policies get uh, defunded on key issues, with Trump's policies get defunded. It's really, it's, 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 it's extraordinary, and it and it's and it's happening. It's a, at an accelerating pace. So I want to talk about how that's affected a few key areas today. But first, I'd like to get your reactions to that. So maybe start with you, Greg, and then Ryan. Well, I think it's uh, it's it's especially um, prevalent in in the case of the coronavirus response. What really struck me about Trump's press conference yesterday in addition to all this sort of superficially obvious stuff about how crazy he is, is the contemptuous dismissal of the very idea that another branch of government might have a major stake in the uh, response to the outbreak. So he said, essentially, he was asked about Rush Limbaugh's remarkable statement that, uh, that, that the coronavirus is being weaponized by the media and by deep state people. I guess the deep state now spreads all the way into the Centers for Disease Control um, and by the media and Democrats against Trump. I mean, think of the narcissism in that one statement. This is an, a major public health emergency, and the only way that Trump and his propagandists are able to conceive of any interest in it that is uh, expressed by Congress... Uh, Democrats in particular, by uh, officials in his own government and by the news media, which is supposed to inform the public about this public health media, is through the prism of it of this extraordinarily narcissistic idea that it can only be about uh, hurting him in some way. I believe Trump actually tweeted that uh, Democrats are and the media are deliberately uh, stoking this panic for the express purpose of uh, shaking the markets, right? Which, in turn, he of course sees as kind of like the uh, the pulse measurement of his political health, and so everything goes back to that, right? Like, I mean, the idea, the very idea that for him the only, the the, uh, the most terrifying thing about this major public health crisis is that the markets could be jittery, which uh, reflects badly on him politically, is itself deeply narcissistic. But to then turn around and think that all other mediating institutions and branches of government can only be seeing this as a weapon against him is just an incredible, uh, incredibly damning uh, portrayal of his uh, psychosis, I think. Well, it's, it's, it's a, a psychosis that's manifest itself 
into all the behaviors and aspects of the United States government. It's, you know, you talk about the institute, the, you know, the old line that an institution is the length and shadow of one man. Uh, in this case, these institutions are the length and shadows of one man's psychosis. R Ryan, what do you, what do you think? Um, I guess I wish I could disagree. Um. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, try. I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. I just can't. Um, but um, just to give a sense of how many people are um, coming in on this, uh, with this, reaching the same conclusion. So we actually do have, I, I think, an incredibly important piece today at Just Security by Nicholas Rasmussen, who um, the title of the piece is The President's War on Intelligence. And uh, one thing about Nick is that he actually served in the Trump administration as head of the uh, National Counterterrorism Center, um, and he's also served in other Republican and Democratic administrations. And it is just a devastating critique along the very lines that we've been talking about, which is to say that it's all about serving uh, Trump's political interest and that the recent development since the pod, um, we're last on the pod, is included in this is the Richard Grinnell appointment to the head of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And again, just a, a political hack and loyalist um, instead of professionals. And part of what uh, Nick is also saying is that if we're not advancing where we need to be with respect to the reorganization of our intelligence community post 9-11, we are then necessarily not just stagnant, but reversing. And and he, he's really sounding an alarm in that piece. And it is along this very line of because uh, what is going on is this cult of personality and around the president's ego and assuaging his ego and thinking of things through the prism of what is good or bad for him personally. Um, and I think that's what's afoot here, including then also in the recent uh, news developments, the purging um, across the board of the different agencies that's being instituted. So I, you know, I don't know what to say except to underline it. Well, I think, you know, that's, it's an interesting, um, well, very, very dis, dis, disconcerting, dis, dispiriting period uh, in which all this is true. There is a litmus test for everything by which you can tell exactly how the government will behave. It, does Trump perceive a person, a place, a policy, an action uh, as good for Trump, then you can predict how he will react. If they perceive it in any way detracting from critical to, critical about Trump, it goes another way. Um, you know, Greg, I, you know, Brian has brought up something here which has gotten coverage, but, but it hasn't quite been what I would have expected because it is so shocking. Richard Grinnell was brought into the ODNI. They brought this guy, what is his name, Cash Patel, who used to be at the NSC, um, in, in, and his job is to purge the intelligence community of people who are perceived as anti-Trump, deep staters, not loyal. Uh, particularly focusing on, you know, political appointees that they've even put in themselves. Johnny McEntee, this guy who was hired, by the way, in one of the weird twists of this thing, a 23-year-old college senior to be one of his senior aides in the White House. His job 
is to clear. And he brought together the people of various agencies of the government. He said, we are going to get rid of the never Trumpers. We are going to get rid of the anti-Trump forces. That is our job. Not to hire people, not to make the government stronger, to get rid of them. In one of the most shocking elements of this thing, um, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court justice, has a little committee that meets and evaluates whether people are being pro-Trump or anti-Trump, and they have regular conversations with the White House in which they say, this person should go, let's replace them with a lawyer. You know, let's make Dan Bongino the head of the Department of Homeland Security. Why, does he have any experience in that regard? No, he's loyal. Um, there are purges going on in the United States government. You know, they're not quite at the level of Stalin-esque purges where people are disappearing or being murdered, but that's not the way the U.S. government is supposed to work. And yet, because this is our president and this is the way we act, Greg, we're, we're sort of taking this in stride. We're sort of accepting that, of course, Trump is going to purge the government and we are going to get a loyalty test before all other tests. Well, there are three points I'd like to make make about this, if I can. The first is the Supreme Court thing is particularly galling uh, in light of the fact that Trump has literally called for the Supreme Court to, to jettison, or in effect, not literally, but to jettison uh, from uh, cases involving Trump to justices because they wrote dissents, right? Um, which is what they're supposed to do. And, and so the fact that that's going on while uh, Jeannie Thomas is, is participating in these purges is, is really an extraordinary uh, indictment of, of, of what you're talking about. The second thing is I, I f the press doesn't, I think, get this quite right. Um, it seems to me that calling these purges uh, efforts to root out the disloyal doesn't do justice to what's the full, the full horror of right the disloyalty implies that trump is angry in some sort of backward looking way he's taking revenge on people who have crossed him right that sort of creates a narrative that i think the press has become comfortable with now the way they like to talk about trump's pathologies is uh through the prism of his emotions uh, and pathologies and sort of, and so forth but there's something more deliberate to this right he's trying to remove people for the express purpose of getting rid of people who acted as obstacles to his efforts to corrupt the rule of law. So getting rid of Vindman is, is a really clear example of this, right? You could describe this as him punishing someone for crossing him, or you could describe it as him saying, this guy who followed lawful procedure and, and, and alerted higher-ups exactly as he's supposed to. Remember, John Kelly said this, right? This is, he did what he was supposed to do, right, in, in uh, alerting higher-ups to the president's corruption and wrongdoing. And we all forget how, at this point, it's been a couple weeks, which is a lifetime. But that whole scheme was extraordinarily corrupt. And you know, many officials inside the government were deeply alarmed by it. This guy was removed precisely because he did the right thing and <laughs> told his higher-ups about it, right? So, and one last point on this, what, what this all boils down to, I think, really is that Trump, for Trump, the government is just there to serve him. 
that's what it's there for, right? It's there to facilitate his uh, looting of the place, his self-dealing. Uh, he's literally scooping taxpayer money into the into the coffers of his business uh, and businesses, and we don't have any idea how much money he's uh, scooping in. Um, you know, the cardinal rule of good governance is that while executive branch officials serve at the pleasure of the president, they're supposed to be serving the public in good faith. They're not supposed to be serving the president's personal and corrupt interests. And Trump has zero appreciation of that fact. In, in fact, he thinks the opposite. The government's there to serve him. Uh, yeah, and, and to serve his family, by the way. There's a story today about yeah. <clears throat> $80,000 being spent on an Eric Trump trip to Uruguay to open something up. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars are pumped into Trump resorts for golf trips or other kinds of, of, of business trips. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got nepotism working. He's got two, you know, he's got his daughter and, and her her husband working at senior levels in the White House. It's it's really monarchical. It's 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 a lot like a, a, a king. And yet, strangely, it's not just his pathology. There's something on the Republican side. There's something with half of the government. His his approval ratings are at as high as they've been right now. That says these people say, well, maybe this is just the way it's got to be to get our agenda advanced. Maybe this is just got to, you know, Trump doesn't care about the rules. He's willing to color outside the lines. That makes him a leader. If he breaks a few laws, if he violates standards, screw the standards. The standards were the problem in the first place. He's a hero. And, 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 and we've got this divide in the country where there's one group of people that sort of say, well, constitution, rule of law, standards, traditions, good government, ethics, and so forth. And there's another group that says those things are the problem. And and it's kind of 50-50 right now, Ryan. It's you know, it's kind of 50-50 and if that is where it ends up in November, we will have four more years of this and all we've seen for the past three and a half years is it has accelerated and gotten worse. So you can only imagine where it'll go for the next four years. I think that's right. Um, and uh, just to put a few more pieces of it together, also what Greg had written about uh, this week in the Post the, and has just mentioned the idea that it's not just retrospective, backward-looking, but it's also preparing the groundwork going forward. And uh, I think the... Grinnell appointment is a very severe example of that in the sense that this is now the head of the the, the, the chief of all <laughs> U.S. intelligence agencies who is a political hack loyalist for the president, doesn't have any background, even with a statute that requires that the per person in that permanent position has a background in intelligence. And just so everybody's clear on this, he is not necessarily in that position temporarily until March 11th. The president could, it's been talked about, renominate uh, Representative John Ratcliffe, which was a non-starter before, and by the very fact of renominating him, it restarts the clock, and then Grinnell can, Grinnell can stay for another 210 days after the Senate rejects Ratcliffe or Trump withdraws Ratcliffe. So he's there, he can be there, and then there's another way, can renew again until the election. Um, that's just one piece of it. The other piece of it is, it's like the 
most open secret that Trump is going to uh, pardon Roger Stone and then probably Paul Manafort slash Michael Flynn. And the only question is, does he do that before or after the election? That's going to happen. And the Republican elected Republicans are going to rally around him when he does that. Even though, arguably, that's illegal, right? You're not allowed to pardon somebody to uh, further an illegal act or, 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 you know, for illicit purposes, correct? And Correct. Uh, part of a crime of obstruction and impeachable, both. Um, absolutely. So, in fact, I suppose I, there's one way in which he maybe does not pardon them, which is he loses the election, and then he needs to think about very seriously. If his his lawyers would have to tell him, if you pardon these people, come January 21st, you do no, you no longer have immunity. I think is that serious um, in terms of the pardon fitting into a but don't, crime. But don't, don't you anticipate in that case? Um, you know, he resigns three days early. Pence becomes president for three days and pardons him. <laughs> well, that's the first I'm hearing of that scenario, but it sure sounds plausible. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm like, yeah, it's not, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm making that scenario up, yeah, Greg. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's not inconsistent in any respect with any of this other stuff we've talked about. Absolutely true. Um, it would be the final middle finger to us all. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, the, 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 the Trump is obsessed with getting. Re- I don't think Trump likes being president of the United States much. I agree. I think he's having a bad time. He certainly doesn't look happy. Last night he looked like he was on, I don't know, twenty six Xanaxes or something. I mean, he was like sleepwalking through this press conference. Alex Azar started to talk, and Trump's like nodding out. His eyelids <laughs> are falling. Because as soon as it gets substantive, he has no interest at all in what's going on. But, you know, he's the I think the reason he's really committed to getting reelected is it keeps the clock running for four more years to keep him from actually being held accountable for the crimes that have been committed. You know, I mean, if once he stops being president, he's got a whole um, host of trouble. There's no Office of Legal Counsel um, memo to protect him. He's hiding behind that right now. Um, for, 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 for dear life. Am I overstating this, Greg? You're like, you know, a rational guy. You're down there in the middle of all of this. Is, is this... I don't think in, in the least. I, I think it's, uh, it's an absolutely plausible reading that, but I, I mean, we've long all, we've all long thought that he doesn't really like this job and he didn't even expect to win in the first place. And that he's, you know, that, that, uh, all this is about, um, you know, the re-election is about two things, right? One is uh, he, he can't bear the thought of, of losing, of course, right? Now that he's in there, it would be a repudiation of, of everything he's done, or at least in his mind it would be. And secondly, it's all about fearing uh, legal consequences once he doesn't have this protective shield. You should check out and subscribe to the Eurasia Group Foundation's podcast, None of the Above which offers new way of thinking about the future of America's role in the world. Increasingly, everyday American voters feel that their preferences are not accurately reflected in Washington. They find themselves dissatisfied with the status quo, and none of the above was conceived to offer something different. The host, Mark Hanna, sits down with leading global thinkers, journalists, activists, and historians to find new answers and new ideas to guide an America uh, that sometimes seems increasingly adrift in the world. You'll hear in-depth 
conversations with foreign policy luminaries, uh, as well as unusual suspects from Cal Penn to Andrew Basevich. Uh, you'll, you'll be interested to hear them speak about topics from nuclear restraint to U.S.-Saudi corporate connection and American military dominance. None of the above is produced by the Eurasia Group Foundation, a nonprofit founded by Ian Bremmer and dedicated to bringing non-traditional voices into the foreign policy conversation. It's what we try to do here at Deep State Radio. Uh, we think that the more people you listen to, the more perspectives you listen to, the more podcasts like ours or like uh, none of the above you listen to, the better off we'll all be, the better conversations we'll be having about our direction as a country. You need the input, and this is another podcast that provides that input. So join me in listening and subscribing to None of the Above. Great new podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Yeah, but you know, it also has this effect of obliterating norms. Once the norm gets obliterated, it doesn't get put back. It's going to be very hard. You know, if 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 Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders is president next year and Mitch McConnell is still running the Senate, he's not going to be running the Senate with norms and rules. You know, that they they they're adopting different different approaches. It reminds me, Ryan, of 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 a piece that you guys had earlier this week from uh, former acting attorney general Gerson in which he was talking about norms and standards within the administration of justice and his experience with Barr. Maybe you'd like to talk about that a little bit. So, Sure. So, um, so Stuart Gerson is a self-described conservative member of the group, the founding of a founding member of the group checks and balances, uh, which is made up of conservative lawyers. And he served with Barr for Barr's entire period in the George H.W. Bush administration. And then uh, Stuart went on also to become an acting attorney general under Clinton. And so he it's a it's a marvelous piece in that it actually walks you through this particular episode uh, when uh, Gerson started as an assistant U.S. attorney and was handling a case of a uh, U.S. senator who they were um, prosecuting for public corruption. And basically, the situation is that the assistant U.S. attorney backs him up um, uh, backs up Stewart against the uh, senator's high-powered lawyers, and basically just asks Stewart, "Do you have a you know solid case? Um, what's the likelihood of success?" Type thing, and then turns around and says, "Good day uh, to the lawyers for the senator. Uh, like there's nothing for, for us to do here. We have a case against your your guy." And that's about the norms. And, and Stewart says, this, these are the norms that I understood to be a part of the fabric of the Justice Department that have been torn asunder by um, Bill Barr. Um, and reflecting on Bill Barr's doing the exact opposite and in not insulating his people from political pressure, but rather channeling the political pressure from the White House down into the Justice Department. And I also thought it was notable that uh, Gerson then goes on um, all in with Chris Hayes and refers to the fact of him getting a, a lot of feedback uh, from Justice Department um, insiders, which I take to mean including people currently in the Justice Department saying to him that Bill Barr has a serious management problem on his hands. There's a lot of dissension within the ranks. And then Stewart also says, but, you know, the, the buck really stops at the president. This is where it's all coming from. Um, and it's about Bill Barr pleasing the president. It's got to it's happen 
in the same way um, in the intelligence community when, as Grinnell and Patel and so forth start doing their thing. It's going to happen, Greg, in the same way, almost inevitably, if the president and Pence keep selling a line about this coronavirus and, and they try to suppress from people like Fauci and others the truth, because those guys aren't going to sit around and and say the truth. And, you know, I mean, Fauci already in the 24 hours has leaked a story saying I've been told not to speak, you know, which is a sign that there is a management problem brewing here. Having said that, you know, anonymous is still anonymous mm. um, and Vindman is out and Yovanovitch is out and Taylor is out and, and all of these people have been penalized. And so that's got to have a chilling effect. And on top of it, Greg, the Democrats, you know, they, you know, they did their impeachment thing. And, uh, you know, I thought that was the right thing to do. But, you know, you don't hear in Democratic debates during the primaries much discussion of this. you, You don't, you know, you know, I don't. I'm not really clear. I, I think pretty, I, I personally think, you know, I'd like to see Elizabeth Warren take on on Trump talking about some of this stuff on the stage. But I'm not really sure whether that's what you'd get out of Biden or Bernie or, or Bloomberg. You have a piece now up on Bloomberg and the arrogance of the Bloomberg campaign. And, you know, if, if you're a narcissist and you're running against another narcissist, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I'll fix things because I'm me. You know, I mean, it's. Somehow, somehow the immune system of the U.S. government against this kind of catastrophe isn't working. Well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm sort of of two minds about the way Democrats are proceeding here. For for a long time, I was sort of fully in the camp that you're talking about, right? Which is, which is, you know, why why aren't the Democratic uh, candidates uh, leaning harder into uh, indictment of of Trump for his lawlessness? Uh, and also as, as the corollary to that being why the House is essentially standing down post-impeachment and not going hard at the William Barr abuses and stuff. I mean, for instance, I think I argued the other day and got some blowback, and thank you for your support on that, Brian. I really do appreciate this. Um, I argued that the House should bring in these lawyers that uh, that um, that were shoved aside um the prosecutors who were shoved aside uh, when when they dialed back the sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone, which was highly irregular, and we've all gone over that stuff. Um, and what what makes this what from in my mind made this whole stand down seem even more puzzling, uh, including among the presidential candidates, is that Biden in particular got a big bang at the start of the campaign by coming out very hard and saying. I'm the guy who recognizes that Trump is destroying the place, and I'm the guy to fix that. And and it was my belief that he kind of hovered at the top of the polls among Democratic primary voters for this particular reason, right? He was telling Democratic primary voters, I get how bad this guy is, um, and I'm going to set it right. And And so, you know, for the longest time, I thought, well, where is that Biden? Why aren't more Democrats do, doing this? But then I had another thought, and I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about this. When I was watching them the other night, and none of this stuff came up, it almost came across as a bit of a relief, 
to hear Democrats just talking about important issues facing the country that weren't just kind of uh, getting drawn into the black hole of Trump's narcissism and lawlessness. And, and I wonder whether there is a substantial chunk of the country out there that is ready to turn the channel, as as Pete Buttigieg, I think, put it very well. Now, that's not just like I, like I say, I really feel conflicted on this point. I think I want to see the Democrat House Democrats go harder on oversight. It's urgent for protecting the country, particularly now that it looks like he's going to try to rig the election for uh, to stay in power. I'd like to see the the Democratic candidates leaning harder into arguments about what reforms will be needed to to repair the immense damage he's doing and how to guard against what you you talked about earlier, uh, David. You know the the fact that the that the the, the destruction of norms is going to essentially mean a further downward spiral. But on the other hand, it's nice to hear them talking about climate change and health care and arguing about these things. So, Ryan, what do you think of that? Um, I think it's a very good point. I guess the, my, and I need, and I need to actually ruminate about it quite a bit, because, uh, um, but I think that maybe you can do both is part of what I would think in response, yeah. which is I think they have to. Uh, you, you're right that the messages have to break through about what Democrats will do for kitchen tabletop issues especially health care, that seems to be so highly important. They need to have an answer on immigration, whatever it's going to be. There needs to be whatever's the progressive view on immigration, because that is another piece of it, and then rebalancing the economy for people. So at the same time, Trump is such an existential threat. It really has, we've turned such a sharp corner um, post-impeachment towards autocracy and um, people need to be alive to how severe the threat is and how I think our institutions just cannot withstand this for four more years. Um, so I, I think it's both. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that it's both. I, 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 I share your relief at listening to them talk about kitchen table issues. And frankly, I think at the end of the day, the, the, the election, like all elections, is going to come down to kitchen table issues. Um, half of Americans who retire at age 65 have $1,000. They don't ever get to retire. They are going to have to work till they die. Um, the promise has been broken for those half of the Americans. Half of Americans would be bankrupt by a sudden expense of $500, um, mm-hmm. uh, a medical expense or a car repair. Um, they're living with huge economic anxiety. Um, most of you know young people who've gone off to college have a huge debt burden that hangs over their head. They may never get out from under it. I saw a study today, by the way, which I found particularly shocking, which may seem off the point, but it's not, which was that showed that the top 10% of the population, males and females, live on average 12 years longer than the bottom 10% of the population. So that the consequences of inequality in the U.S. are not just the billionaires are having a high life. People actually, you know, if you're in the top 10, 20 percent, you, you get more life. Otherwise, if you're not, you die. And I think these issues weigh on people. And frankly, I think the reason Donald Trump won was not that he's a political genius, but that he tapped into the anxiety and grievance of a large number of Americans who said, these other people aren't fixing this. 
you know, the Dems, you know, the middle of the road Dems, they're not fixing this thing for me. So maybe we'll take a, you know, we'll roll the dice with these guys, you know, because maybe maybe, maybe Trump's going to help me. And I think, therefore, to get to a long you know, conclusion to this, it really has to be both, but not in the way that we, we, we might think about it. It's not you've got to go out and attack Donald Trump before breaking the law. What you really have to do is you have to say, Donald Trump broke his promise. He hasn't helped you. Um, that if you can't, you can't trust Donald Trump because he's an advocate for the 1%. The only people are going to be able to help you, help your family, help your legacy, help your bank account are Democrats, party of Wall Street versus party of Main Street. And, and so the attack on Trump is on his credibility as a guy who's going to help them. And, and the farmers know this now. The manufacturers know this now. They know the trade deals won't help. And by the way, if a million businesses go bankrupt in China hmm. because of coronavirus, which was one estimate that I saw, they're, they're, the, the, the fix the president did on his bad trade deal isn't actually going to happen. They're not going to start buying stuff. Those farmers, those manufacturers are going to feel a lot of pain come the fall. Um, so I, I don't know. Did, did we answer your question, Greg? Or are you more confused? Well, I, I just wanted I'd love to point out an interesting irony to what you just raised there. Right. Uh, the anti quote unquote globalists inside the administration, Trump included, are salivating at the um, at the coronavirus uh, blight in China because they think it creates an opening for them to further their uh, anti globalist arguments. Right. Mm -hmm. But the irony here is that. Uh, you know, it's going to actually expose the total fraudulence of, of their their anti-globalist agenda precisely the way you point out, if that happens, right? Um, they're, they're trying to figure out how to, to hoodwink farmers in the Midwest um, into ignoring what a disaster the trade wars have been by essentially saying, look, you know, we've grabbed China by the collar and we've shaken them until they're taking your product. But if that doesn't happen... Mm -hmm. They're going to not, what are they going to say to, to those farmers at that point, right? Um, I want to point out something that I think you also raised that, that is, is interesting. If you think about the way Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, right, there, there's what you're saying, David, if I understand you correctly, is you're saying that we need to come up with a way to fuse the argument uh, or integrate the argument against Trump's lawlessness and autocracy and the damage that's doing with the argument against his uh, selling out of ordinary people economically, right? That's what you're saying, essentially, David? Yeah, I, th I, th I think the point is the, 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 the character... Right, right. It's an integration of he's 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 corrupt. He's enriching himself. He's looting the place. That that's the corruption, and he's also looting the place to to enrich his class at your expense. Right, and right. You know, he he sold you out. It's always been about him. It's interesting. Some of the ads that some of the Democratic groups are starting to run in in, in some of these places are starting to try to feel their way toward an integration of those two messages. There's a bit of a divide in the Democratic Party that uh, I think complicates uh, the effort to integrate those two messages, which I agree they should be doing. Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren tend to approach these issues this way, right? They say, well, uh, um, 
we need to say that the primary problem, the problem that brought us Trump, uh, the, 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 the problems that brought us Trump are deeper and much more structural, and Trump is just an aberration, right? That sort of feeds their large narrative about what's happened to the country um, in the neoliberal era and so forth. Uh, that that and it feeds their argument against quote unquote establishment neoliberal Democrats as well. But what it doesn't, what it leads them to, I think, erroneously do, is uh, kind of dismiss the importance of the corruption. Now Elizabeth Warren, and I should I should qualify that Elizabeth Warren was very early on impeachment. She's been very forceful on that. But I do think on some level Bernie is uncomfortable making the argument, the norms uh, and, and rule of law argument against Trump, because he feels in some way that it's kind of capitulating to this sort of centrist democratic uh, worldview, which holds that the primary threat that Trump poses is a norms threat and not and 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 that he's an aberration from a, a non, you know, for a, a, that he's an aberration as opposed to a symptom of much deeper problems that are structural and economic and or political uh, structural uh, problems with our political economy, and that's a problem. I think uh, you know, uh, I think Biden and Elizabeth Warren have kind of ticked this lock. They know how to talk <laughs> about both these topics, but Bernie, I don't think is quite there. And and if he gets the nomination, I really hope he gets there. Well, Brian, what do you what do you, what do you have to say to that? As we have a minute or two left. Uh, just a couple thoughts to bring some things together that might suggest there might be a difference between now and November, which is one on the 50-50 split between people who care about the norms and the others who are all too happy to see norms broken. I think the response to the coronavirus might change that, that people might actually understand better why there are certain norms and in institutions and that need to, for good governance purposes, operate based on efficiency um, and merit and science um, and um, expertise and loyalty can doom us all <laughs> instead as a system of governing. Um, so that might be one. Um, and then, and we don't have to go through a crisis of the coronavirus. It can just get close to it for people to maybe wake up to that to some degree. Second is the idea that Bernie Sanders might be in the Oval Office, um, might do something to Republicans to understand behind a veil of ignorance the idea of norm busting um, from within the Oval Office um, and uh, you know use of executive orders and things like that to not get congressional approval is something that they might begin to envision. There's just a sensibility that starts to seep in as you get closer to that November election that what's good for a Republican president abusing power might be good for a Democratic president abusing power who also thinks that they have a revolutionary idea of how they want to change things. So just that might be another element. Um, and then there's something today in the news that is another one potentially, which is the peace agreement with the Taliban and 22 House members uh, led by Liz Cheney have sent a letter not naming Trump and instead blaming <laughs> Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense for secret side agreements with the Taliban and placing uh, concerns that what I think they're really saying is the president is trying to sew up some deal that he thinks he can market uh, for his own personal interests, even if um, it flies against their view of what they think uh, should be the proper relationship <laughs> between the United States and the Taliban and Afghanistan. An inkling of some dissension within their ranks. Um, on an issue of national security. 
it's interesting, and I, I hope we get to talk about that at greater length uh, in in uh, podcasts to come because there there is some divide um, um, among reasonable people about how this is being handled, and I think there is a you know should we be in forever wars? No, right. should we? Um, cut a deal with the Taliban and hand the keys back to them after 19 years and essentially say, you know, you're on your own and, and, and acknowledge that we've, you know, spent a trillion or two trillion dollars and, you know, at the end of the day, revert to the status quo in that country. That's a problem as well. And so I, you know, I think we need to address it. But, you know, in the discussion between you two guys, and I really admire both of you, and it's, it's very thought provoking for me. I, I, I come away with one last conclusion, too, and that is that impulse of the Trump voter that norms are the problem is founded in some reason. Hmm. If for 40 years Democrats and Republicans come and go, offer you know themselves as being different, but at the, each part of that period from the from the beginning of Reagan through now the one percent gets more the 99 percent gets less the one percent gets to control elections more they get more influence they get more uh, immunity from prosecution they they get more benefits from and we all get less and Democrats and Republicans are doing that Washington is doing it they're doing it under Obama and they're doing it under Bush they're doing it under Clinton and they're doing it under um, Reagan then of, then of course the norms seem to be the problem and of course Bernie is saying that mm-hmm. you know he's he's offering that up and he's established um, you know a, f- a foothold and 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 is the front runner until Saturday when Biden will become the front runner and then we'll see <laughs> where it all ends up but 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 it does leave me with a bit of a chilling thought and this echoes a little bit I encourage everybody to go read Greg's piece on 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 Bloomberg um and the arrogance of the Bloomberg campaign but Bloomberg is running not to beat Trump he's running to beat Bernie and Warren he is running on behalf of the 1% that see them as a threat or the 10% that see them as a threat. And I think the most likely outcome, frankly, at this point is that Joe Biden is going to become the candidate. Um, it won't be Bloomberg. And he is going to pursue an approach that is Obama-esque, which is going to actually revert to the norms of the past 40 years with economic advisors drawn from that pool. And this could exacerbate inequality. It could exacerbate the problems. And that deep ocean of grievance will continue to fuel the far right and the far left going forward beyond this election. There will not be a catharsis that, but that will preserve some norms that are actually destructive norms even as we have destroyed norms that are actually essential norms. It's a, it's, a, it's a conundrum, but it seems something we ought to consider. Anyway, Greg, I know you were writing right up until the beginning of this podcast, and thank you very much for taking the time out to join us. And Well, you were a great contributor to it. We hope you'll be back again soon. Ryan, as ever, great discussion. Uh, and uh, join us again next week for further episodes of Deep State Radio. 
uh, uh, National Security Magazine. Uh, great We've got discussion. some new and interesting really, really guests coming up next week. Uh, go to the DSR Network to learn more about uh, what we're doing, including our upcoming event on May 21st at the Warner Theater with 15 other podcasts, which we are calling Washington Today Forum, mainly because the initials then spell out WTF. Um, <laughs> you can call it <laughs> you can call it PodCon 2020, but it's going to be great, and you really ought to sign up now because you know tickets are limited, and it's it's going to be I I think one of the most interesting events that takes place in Washington this year. So go to our site and read a little bit about it, and we'll tell you more about it next week. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye bye.